Before returning to work after the Clavenless weekend, I always take the time to research the news in order to find out what's been going on while I was receiving my regenerative youth transfusions and disposing of the bodies of the virgins. Here's a summary of what I learned from my deep study of mainstream media news sources. The mainstream media report that there's been flooding in Louisiana. And unlike President George W. Bush, who did not rush to Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina because he didn't care about black people, President Obama did not rush to Louisiana because he didn't want to cause traffic jams and distract from rescue efforts. Donald Trump rushed to Louisiana because he's a heartless grandstander who'll use even a fatal disaster to get himself on television, whereupon Obama decided to rush to Louisiana because he's a sensitive leader who cares so very deeply about the American people now that his summer vacation is over. Hillary Clinton didn't rush to Louisiana because she just wasn't feeling up to it. Not that she's sick or anything. She's totally not, totally. She just needs a little rest. Totally well. As if Trump's actions handing out relief materials to flood victims weren't disgusting enough, the billionaire went on to make racist remarks, pointing out that black Americans under Democratic leadership have poor schools, low employment, and dangerous neighborhoods. This was an outrageously cruel statement to make about a disadvantaged segment of our society already suffering from poor schools, low employment, and dangerous neighborhoods. Trump continues to use hateful, racist, violent rhetoric to incite his crappy cracker followers who deserve to be killed. In other mainstream media news, it at first seemed the Obama administration did not give $400 million to the terrorist state of Iran, Iran as ransom because that would only encourage Iran to kidnap more Americans. But then, luckily, it turned out the money was, was ransom because the administration had courageously set Americans free in a canny negotiated settlement. Trump's former campaign manager was revealed to have taken money from the Ukraine because of his dark, sinister ties to Russian leader Vladimir Putin, whereas Hillary Clinton was revealed to have taken money from the Ukraine because of the charitable work done by the Clinton Foundation. Finally, the mainstream media revealed that there was absolutely no hack of documents from the not-at-all-sinister billionaire George Soros, who was therefore not revealed to have funneled money to the non-hateful, non-violent Black Lives Matter groups. The absolutely, totally unmalevolent Soros was also not shown in the not-hacked emails not to have pressured the Obama administration into taking even more completely non-threatening Syrian refugees. Obviously, if anything else had happened, it would have been reported, which it wasn't, anywhere, which is totally non-sinister, like Soros. I hope this little summary gives you some sense of the deep research that goes into our show as we gather all the weekend reporting of the mainstream media together in one place. Also, it's cheaper than buying real toilet paper. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. <laughs> I love... <laughs> I love this flooding thing where Obama is playing golf while the people in Louisiana drown. And he's, it's so good. Of him. It's so generous of him, you know. And then, you know, uh, Trump goes there and he hands out Play-Doh to the children. They've lost everything. And he gives them a little toy. It's like, what do they need Play-Doh for? What's the matter? What's, what's This guy's terrible. Just, anyway, we're back. We're back. It's the Clavenless weekend is over. It's time to sweep up, bury the bodies, re rebuild the cities and all this. And we are on with you uh, here on Facebook and YouTube for 15 minutes. And then we'll wink out and suddenly you'll be plunged back into darkness. But you can come to The Daily Wire, download us on iTunes or SoundCloud. 
And if you subscribe on Wednesday, we can include your questions in the mailbag. I keep getting these questions on Twitter and email, and they keep saying, couldn't you ask this on your show? No. Part with your lousy eight bucks. Come on. I mean, let's go. Let's go. It's 30 days free, and then we come and take $8 and probably some of your knickknacks, and, you know, we just break into your house. All right, and also, please, if you will pre-order my uh, memoir, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, send me the receipt at aclaven at dailywire.com, and I will send you a sticker with an autograph you can put in the book. This, the Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. You will genuinely enjoy it. I'm getting such great reactions, early reactions, and pre-publication reviews. I think you'll really like it. All right, the Trump pivot. This is the big news. Trump has changed. He's no longer Trump. He's an entirely different candidate. This is wonderful. He made a speech just as he waited till he knew we were going off the air because he knew I would mock him, you know. (laughs) So he just waited. And at the last minute, he made this speech, and he said, and remember, he's now got his new team, Steve Bannon and Kelly and Conway are now his, running his campaign, and he's in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he makes this speech saying maybe he hasn't always said the exact right thing. As you know, I'm not a politician. It's good. I've worked in business, created a great company, created lots of jobs, rebuilding neighborhoods. That's what I've done all of my adult life. I've never wanted to learn the language of the insiders, and I've never been politically correct. It takes far too much time. <laughs> sure. True. But truthfully, it takes far too much time and can often make it more difficult to achieve total victory. Sometimes, In the heat of debate and speaking on a multitude of issues, you don't choose the right words or you say the wrong thing. I have done that. And believe it or not, I regret it. And I do regret it, particularly where it may have caused personal pain. Too much is at stake for us to be consumed with these issues. But one thing I can promise you this, I will always tell you the truth. So, so okay, kind of a non-apology apology. It's only it's only because he's so honest. He's so he's not a politician. He's been he's been spending his time rebuilding America and didn't really learn. You know, so I'm a little confused. Does this mean Ted Cruz's father didn't kill JFK? I'm just, <laughs> I just want to know because I you know it's, I I thought we had solved that problem. Anyway, you know. It's a non-apology apology, but it's a different tone. I think we have to be fair and say that it is a different tone. It is not the usual Donald Trump belligerence. It's not I won't apologize for anything. And I, I have to be honest. I have a little sympathy for the people who don't like to see politicians apologize because the left has been using. What the left does is it twists our good manners against us. That's what it does. It says, you've offended me. Nobody wants to offend anybody. I don't want to offend anybody. You know, but it says like, oh, you know, you you 
waved an American flag. That's offensive to me. You offended me. So everything you do that expresses your right-wing conservative opinions, your pro-American opinions, your constitutional opinions, becomes an insult to them. You know, it's some kind of racist comment, and everybody has to apologize for everything, and we're all wa- walking on tiptoes, and all it really is is shut up. All it means is shut up. Don't say anything that disagrees with the left-wing agenda of the government taking over every aspect of your life and telling you exactly how you should behave at every minute, how you should run your business, all this stuff. Don't say anything about that or you're a racist, terrible person, so apologize. And so when we see Trump not apologize, we like it. On the other hand, he has done a lot of stuff where, you know, a normal, decent person would apologize. And all these things get confused together because it's really the left started it. The left did this whole thing. I mean, there was a, you know, this movie Sausage Party has come out and some gay site did a review of it saying something nice about the depiction. I haven't seen the movie yet, so I'm not sure what we're talking about, but it's the depiction voiced by Selma Hayek of a lesbian taco shell, I believe it is, a lesbian taco. And they were attacked because, no, she's not a lesbian. She's a bisexual taco shell. <laughs> and so this, this website put out a 26 word apology, a 2,600-word apology. And let me do just some quick math. That is eight typed pages, nine, eight or nine typed pages of apology that they put out. So I think we're all a little tired of apology. So he makes this apology where he's kind of winking at the audience, but it is a different tone. And there has been what some people are perceiving as a little bit of pullback on his anti-immigration stuff. So for instance, he once said he was going to have an immigration force. He was going to establish an immigration force to come to your house and arrest the approximately, nobody really knows how many there are, but approximately 11 million illegal aliens and deport them. And you can just imagine what that's going to look like on television to have these people being, you know, mother, mother, please don't take my mother, you know, where even, even all those Trump guys who are shouting, build a wall, build a wall, are going to be going like, What? You know, that's what it looks like when you drag a child away from its mother. That doesn't look as good as it did in my imagination. In my imagine, You know, when I was raging in the room by myself, that looked like a lot of fun, but suddenly it's not. So now he's kind of pulling back. Here's Kellyanne Conway, his new communicator, who is just kind of just fudging on the edges of this a little bit. So does Donald Trump still support that? A deportation force removing the 11 million or so undocumented immigrants? What he supports, and if you go back to his convention speech a a month ago, Dana, what he supports is to make sure that we enforce the law, that we are respectful of those Americans who are looking for well-paying jobs, and that we are fair and humane for those who live among us in this country. And as the weeks unfold, as the weeks unfold, he will lay out the specifics of that plan that he would implement as president of the United States. Will that plan include a deportation force, the kind that he... Just, you just heard in that soundbite and that he talked about during the Republican primaries. To be determined. <laughs> T- T- TBD, you know, <laughs> it's like two months, two months till the guy, would, you know, theoretically becomes president. Not two months, two months before the election. We don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a major point, but that's okay. So, he's, so he's, he's just softening his tone a little bit. Now, here are two takes on this, okay? One is Krauthammer's. He gives you the political take, which is cynical and, you know, hard to believe. You know, how, how is it that this guy is going to change the personality of a lifetime and become a— you know, you, it really would have to be a different Donald Trump entirely. So here's Krauthammer expressing just a little bit of cynicism. You, you get two strikes, three strikes, and you're out. You get a third of firing, and it'll be called 
disarray, chaos, confusion. But I think at this point, people understand that with the stories coming out about Amman and Ford, it was impossible to keep him on. So that's sort of explicable. The other part is we saw from the speech that uh, Trump made uh, late today in Michigan, the, the process of softening the man is underway. I mean, this is a very heavy soak, a wash, a dry, a spin, and they, they're, they're doing it, I think, rather effectively, talking about uh, the concern of minorities, supposedly confessing that he occasionally says the wrong things. Let's see if he can do that without reading off a teleprompter. And I'm sure he'll be asked, what do you regret? Can you give an example? Mm -hmm. It'll be extremely interesting uh, to see if he gives an example and which example it might be. So Krauthammer makes a good point there because, remember, it's not just this apology thing. I regret occasionally running over, backing over my friend's children's and whatever he's saying. You know, it's not just that. He's had a, Trump has had a good four or five days. You know, he made an excellent foreign policy speech. Uh, Bolton was in the uh, Wall Street Journal saying it, this was a good foreign policy speech. Excellent speech on law and order. His thing about blacks, this the speeches he's making about blacks driving the left crazy. Uh, to, well, just play a little bit of the second Trump cut. The inner cities of our country have been run by the Democratic Party for more than 50 years. Their policies have produced only poverty, joblessness, failing schools, and broken homes. It's time to hold Democratic politicians accountable for what they have done to these communities. At what point do we say enough? At what point do we say enough? It's time to hold failed leaders accountable for their results, not just their empty words over and over again. So, you know, that that drives that drove the Hillary camp nuts because he's saying that, you know, Black people's lives suck under Democrats, which is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And they're saying, how could you say such terrible things? But there's another take on Trump that really fascinates me. And unfortunately, if you're on Facebook, you got to come on over or YouTube. Come on over to The Daily Wire and hear the rest. It's really an interesting, different take on what Trump is doing. All right, into the valley of death, right? The 600... The other uh, take on what Trump is doing in this turnaround, this what do they call it, the pivot, comes from the Dilbert cartoonist Scott Adams. And Adams has been predicting and continues to predict a Trump victory. And Adams has talked about Trump's use of persuasion techniques. But now he's saying that Trump is following in his campaign, whether he's doing it on purpose or not, he is following the what is called the three-act structure of screenplay writing. Screenplays have a very steady structure, especially if you're writing, if you're writing popular screenplays, if you're writing summer movies and things like this. Screenplays are thought to have a very, very specific structure. Down to the page, when you read a book on screenwriting or when you practice screenwriting, you know, I, I use a board in back of me when I write a screenplay and I put cards up and all this stuff, and I know that at certain places, certain events have to take place, certain kinds of emotional events. And here is Scott Adams talking about how Trump's campaign 
is modeled essentially on that board that would be in back of me as I write. And here, here he's, he's talking about the three-act structure. Let's say you were writing the movie of Trump's rise, and let's say you're thinking ahead and Trump actually wins in, uh, in the end. If you're writing that movie, the typical um, form for the movie is that there's something unexpected happened that changes somebody's life trajectory. And that would be when um, Trump announced he was running for presidency. Uh, then there's the second act of the movie in which uh, it's been called the fun and games part. And in that, you would see your, uh, your protagonist, your hero of the movie, overcoming a number of smaller hurdles that while you're watching them, they look like big hurdles. So you don't know that they're overcomable. You do because it's a movie, but they look like they're bad hurdles. But it's not until you get what's called the third act when you realize that all those hurdles you've overcome, such as uh, winning the primary and you know coming up to at least even in the polls in the general election against Clinton for a while, um, it looked like you had crossed the big hurdles, only to discover there's an even bigger one at the end. You know, the big hurdle, the hurdle of all hurdles. And that's what makes it a movie. So it can't be the hurdle of all hurdles <clears throat> until you also have time running out. Because we imagine that most things could be solved if you had enough time. <clears throat> but it's the time running out that makes it a third act. And now that you have, you know, September coming up pretty quickly in October, and it's the last two months of a long campaign, if there's a third act, it would happen in those two months. Okay, so what he's saying is, now that thing about fun and games, that comes from a book called Save the Cat, I think. So he's, he's referencing these books that we all read, you know, that tell you the structure of a screenplay. What, he, what he's not saying is that because this happens in the movies, it's going to happen in Trump's campaign. What he's saying is that we, our imaginations have been colonized by the movies so that we react to real life as if it were a movie or a reality show. And that since Trump is following that trajectory, we are all going to respond to him as we would respond to the hero of a movie. That's a very, very meta way to look at things. And I, I have to say, I'm always suspicious of these readings. I think people are incredibly able to respond to media with realism. I mean, they blow up towers in movies all the time and nobody's heart breaks. But when we saw on television, when we saw the World Trade Center explode, we were all traumatized because we knew, even though we were seeing it on a screen, we knew that it was real. Some of us, there were some crazy people who were still complaining that it was not real. But we are actually more capable than he thinks we are, I think, of detaching from even the colonization of the movies, which is a, a real thing. Now, the, right now, the polls from 538, they're saying that the polls are tightening in the national race, but not in the state races. And that, of course, is where everything takes place in the Electoral College. But still, still, it'll be interesting to see how much of what Adam says comes true, because it is true that uh, Trump's campaign is following that three-act pattern. Now, meanwhile, just to just to follow whether Trump is actually going to change, we have to look at Hillary for a minute because her campaign, if it weren't for the utter, utter corruption of the media, her campaign would be in smoke and ashes. I mean, everything that's happening to her is just terrible. First, she was caught, you know, they handed in her testimony to the FBI. They gave it over to Congress. And it turns out she blamed Colin Powell for telling her, oh, yeah, you ought to have this, this you know, crummy separate server where, you know, our secrets can be stolen by our enemies. You know, this is Colin Powell. And Colin Powell's going, wait, they're trying to stick this on me, he says to People Magazine. They're trying to stick this on me. 
Colin Powell did not have a separate server where he exposed top class, uh, top secret information like she did. They, the rules were different when Colin Powell was Secretary of State, and she's still trying to sell this routine. So she's caught out in that lie. And then, you know, there's also the fact that um, she hasn't given a press conference in 260 days, which is edging up on a year. So even John Dickerson, a complete Democrat stooge, is now asking Robbie Mook, the perennially sneering, <laughs> it looks like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make fun of stroke victims, but he looks like a, a guy who had a stroke in the midst of a sneer, and he's just going to sneer forever. So even Dickerson is asking him about the fact that she just doesn't face the press. It's been uh, 260 days since the press conference, and somebody I was talking to had been in a White House said, if a candidate can't have press conferences and deal with the cut and thrust of a press conference, that weakens them when they become president because they're going to need that as a way to communicate with the American people. So why not have a press conference? Well, uh, the real question here is whether Secretary Clinton has been taking questions from reporters, which she absolutely has. We went and counted, and uh, she has uh, been in more than 300 interviews with reporters this year alone. I know she's been on your show, and we're going to continue to do that. And there are a lot of different formats in which she can engage with reporters, whether it's those one-on-one -on -one interviews, uh, whether it's talking with her traveling uh, uh, press uh, and reporters, uh, or a press conference. And we're going to look at all of those as we move forward. But right. I, I don't think it's fair to say that someone is shying away from tough questions when they've taken over 300 uh, interviews from reporters. We uh, tried to have uh, the interns look at how many uh, questions she took, which is a much bigger number, as uh, you would appreciate. Yeah. And we haven't even finished tallying that. So this guy's on auto lie. One day I really expect just like a, a demon to drop out of the top of the screen, just rip his soul out of the top of his head and carry it away. Sorry, that's one lie too many. <laughs> <You know? laughs> just leave, leave the shriveled husk of Robbie Mook's body sitting there. Now, on top of this, Hillary's lesbian lover slash campaign aide, Uma Abedin, has been exposed. To, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know what makes me think that. It's ridiculous. She's been exposed in a New York Post article as having edited a radical Islamic journal <clears throat> that is opposed to the rights of women, as it would be. Hillary Clinton's, this is from the Post, Hillary Clinton's top campaign aide and the woman who might be the future White House chief of staff to the first female U.S. president for a decade edited a radical Muslim publication that opposed women's rights and blamed the U.S. for 9-11. This is stuff, I mean, there was stuff in here by Huma's mother basically saying empowerment of women does more harm than benefit to the cause of women and saying that the America was doomed uh, to be hit on 9-11. And, and all of these articles were edited and worked on by Huma. So, I, you know, whether, is she going to have to answer that? No, of course not. You know, that, that would take a, a, a working press. <clears throat> but just to, to finish, to give you the punchline of this, what's Trump tweeting about this morning? He's tweeting about the fact that Joe and Mika on Morning Joe insulted them. <laughs> He's calling her a neurotic and all. So I think, I think Trump is still Trump. There's something about this. Is, this is what the guy is talking about. All right, so while we're talking about lesbians, let's get back to the, the sausage party. This idea. There, Jim Jarrity from the uh, National Review had an article last week or the end of last week where he said the right is winning the culture war. He says, allow me to throw out a theory, and I'm not entirely sure I believe it myself. It came up in a conversation with Liz Shield last night. Think of this assertion as the playing the devil's advocate. In 2016, the right is winning the culture wars. <coughs> Here's his evidence. Target 
uh, will spend $20 million to add private bathrooms to each of its stores next year after customers protested its policy allowing transgender individuals to use whichever restroom corresponds with their gender identity. So they're spending $20 million, which means there must have been a real upheaval among the customers. Another piece of evidence, Caitlyn Jenner's reality show, I Am Kate, got canceled. Uh, the all-female Ghostbusters, which feminists kind of made a cause celeb, saying if you don't go to see this, you're anti-feminist, that bombed. Uh, the alumni at universities are reacting, are, are holding back on giving because they're tired of these spoiled juvenile wimps or social justice warriors. I don't know what SJW stands for, but this is spoiled juvenile wimps, social justice warriors, one or the other. They, they're, you know, they're hampering free speech and making all this trouble, and the alumni are pulling back on their, um, on their donations. A drop in enrollment at the university, a huge drop in enrollment at the University of Missouri, where there was all that racial tension, Gawker shutting down. Is there a rebellion against the left? So I haven't seen Sausage Party, but it's made by the guys who made This is the End. And our intrepid reporter, Michael Knowles, is going is not not only did he see it, but he's going to broadcast to us live from the room next door. <laughs> Can we get, do we have the technology to bring in Knowles from the room next door? <laughs> oh my God, my, this is amazing. This is what will they think of me? There may be a little time delay because he's coming from, I think, maybe 20 feet away. So <laughs> you actually saw a sausage party, did you not? I saw it so that you don't have to. Do it. And, uh, we no, appreciate it. Was, it was about 30% genuinely hilarious. The movie, for those who don't know, is about uh, a sausage named Frank and a bun named Brenda and a lesbian taco. And they are uh, dreaming about getting out of the supermarket and being taken home by these human gods and going to the great beyond. Uh, but then they realize what happens to them when they leave the supermarket and they launch a long struggle to get out. And what's really amazing is that uh, Seth Rogen is much more astute than he realizes. All of these guys who made this movie, it the movie is basically about what happens when a culture decides that it must kill its gods to be happy and free. And the answer, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but uh, it's a movie about a talking hot dog, so get over <laughs> it, is uh, the, the answer is lots of bizarre and mostly gay sex. And it, if there is not a greater analog for 2016 than a culture killing its gods and having bizarre sex. <laughs> and is, is this looked on askance at all, or is it great that there's lots of uh, crazy sex? I mean, well, is that this is where Seth Rogen doesn't realize how smart he is, is that it's really celebrated as a very excellent ending to the movie. Uh, whereas in if we were looking at our culture, we might say that decadence and decay is something of a tragedy. I see. But, uh, <laughs> but they, they are celebrating all the way through. They never break the joke. Well, I, I have to say I will eat hot dogs with an entirely different attitude from now on. And, uh, oh, we, yeah, <laughs> we got, got Mexican right after we saw the movie. So. Excellent, excellent. And I appreciate your coming on. I just want to say that Don't Tread on Me flag is a racist defense. And, uh, the, the, I'm sorry for microaggressing you. Our, our, de our deportation force will be in your room momentarily. Is it? <laughs> They're here. <laughs> All, right. All right, thanks a lot, Michael. I appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. See ya. Now, if, if that seems to you like it, it's entirely like crazy, I admit, Knowles is crazy. That's a, that, there's nothing we can do about that. But in fact, the, the, the team that made this made another picture called This Is The End. And This Is The End is a story of all these narcissistic um, actors who play themselves 
in the apocalypse. And at one point, they turn to each other and say, well, wait, if there's an apocalypse, then there must be a God. Who saw that coming? And they look at each other and somebody says, everybody except for us. <laughs> so, so even though Rogan is baked out of his mind half the time, you know, this is, this is something that is obviously on his mind. And the thing about, the thing about uh, Garrity's piece in the National Journal saying we won the culture war, just like football, just like any game, you can't win playing defense. You know, defense makes it possible for you to win. But one of the problems with the right is that we're always playing defense. It's always, no, 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 we don't want that. No, 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 we don't like that. That's bad, that's bad, that's bad. Don't change this, don't do this. The world used to be a better place. You, if you want to win the culture war, and I'm not sure that's exactly how culture works, but, but just speaking in those simplistic terms for a minute, you have to know what you believe, and you have to put it forward aggressively. You have to make movies about real life that say, this is what works, you know, this is what happens. This is what, what we believe in, we believe that the individual is the driver of improvements in life and the government gets in the way of the individual and his only role is to protect his freedom, to protect his freedom of conscience, to protect his freedom of action, to protect his freedom to do business, to protect his freedom and safety to be himself and follow his conscience even when his conscience looks like something awful to you. As long as he leaves you alone, as long as he doesn't interfere with your liberty, we believe that he should be free and that is a positive message that is not a enough. So, for stuff I like, I saw the film Hell or High Water on Austin's recommendation. And uh, I have to say, I probably would have seen it anyway because of the writer. It stars Jeff Bridges, Chris Pine, Ben Foster. Ben Foster, one of my absolute favorite actors. I think he's one of the great actors of the generation. I think it's unfortunate that he always plays these kind of madmen, you know, but I think he's just a really, really good actor. So Chris Pine and Ben Foster, it's kind of a modern Western. They go out and they rob banks because the banks have been repossessing homes and treating people badly in this part of West Texas that is just dying of poverty. Jeff Bridges goes out with a partner and chases him down. And one of the things that's really terrific about the film is the interplay between Jeff Bridges and his partner. I'm not sure who the actor is who plays the partner. What's his name? He's, he's on Parks and Rec. Oh, he's, I know oh, all right. So he's a guy from Parks and Rec. But the thing is, they're, they're kind of the same two people. The bank robbers and the cops are kind of the same two people, but they're fighting and they're using the same, imp they're both stirred by testosterone. I mean, the idea of testosterone just is all over this movie. But the cops are the good guys because they're putting their energies to good purposes. And the bad guys are a little bit, um, yeah, let's put them gray, they're in shades of gray because they're doing it for, Chris Pine at least is doing it for his family. Here's a scene where Chris Pine and Ben Foster are talking about uh, Chris Pine's family, who he's, he, they're the reason he's robbing banks. You boys know how rich they're gonna be? They don't know anything yet. You take them to the funeral? Like I said, they don't know anything. You want a little advice? No, no, I don't. Go see him tomorrow. You got any idea how much I owe Debbie and child support? You got enough in your front pocket to fix that problem right now. You can't spare it, you know that. Maybe we should hit another branch. You know, you talk like we ain't gonna get away with this. I've never met nobody got away with anything, ever. You. And why in the hell did you agree to do it? Because you asked, little brother.
That's the other thing. This is about the love of uh, people for their family, the fact that we will do just about anything for our family. I have to mention, it's directed by David McKenzie, but the hero of this movie, which really is a good, strong crime picture, is the writer Taylor Sheridan. The reason I know this is because he also wrote Sicario, which was really hampered by casting. They cast a woman in in a man's part, basically, and it really hampered the picture, but a very, very tough well-written crime drama. This script was on what's called the blacklist in Hollywood, where these are scripts that everybody knows are great, but nobody will make. And this has been around forever and been knocking around, finally got it made, and it's really good. Taylor Sheridan, really good crime writer. We'll see him a lot more. All right, and we will see me a lot more as the week continues and we move into Tuesday. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Be there.